Welcome to Linworth Road Church, helping people become fully alive, fully mature, and fully on mission. Visit linworthroadchurch.com to learn more. Well, again, good morning. If you're new with us, my name is Nick Carruthers. I'm one of the pastors here. And again, just so you guys know and so you can be praying for him, our lead pastor, Chris Martin, is on a four-week sabbatical to study and to rest and and whatever else you do on sabbaticals. And uh, <clears throat> I just want to encourage you to be lifting him up uh, to the Lord and to be praying for him these next few weeks. And, and you know, it was actually kind of funny. A few months ago when uh, we were having a staff meeting and he told us that he was going to be going on sabbatical. And so we started looking at the calendar and it was like, oh, okay, well, you're going on personal vacation in March and then sabbatical in April and May. And, and then you're leading our uh, East Asia mission trip in July. And it's like, wow, you're going to be gone a lot, you know, is what we were kind of realizing. And, and so I kind of blurted out, let the coup begin, okay? We're taking this place over while he's gone. Just kidding, don't worry. Um, and then someone else yelled out, Chris Martin, who's that? <laughs> so obviously he'll be missed. And again, uh, if you would, pray for him. But if you were here last week, you'll know that Chris finished us up in our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians and if you were here with us through that series, you'll know it was quite a wild ride. We, we covered some really difficult uh, topics, uh, but at the same time, they were very relevant for us here today in, the, in America in the 21st century. And so, uh, but today we are moving on and we are beginning a five-week series in which we're going to look at some of the parables of Jesus. And, and so this should be fun. You know, the parables, they're very interesting. They are these little mini stories, and I, I think most of us uh, enjoy and connect well with stories. And so hopefully these next few weeks will be a blessing for you. Uh, but what I want to do this morning is to briefly introduce and explain what parables are. And then I want to walk through two very short parables found in the book of Matthew. Does that sound good? All right, well, let me pray and invite the Lord to join us this morning. Father, we welcome you here. We thank you for the promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, you're there in their midst. And, and so, Lord, would you guide our time this morning? Would you open up your word to our hearts to, to understand, to know, and to love you better? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we go ahead and stand and read together our parables found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. <clears throat> it says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Okay, so before we get into those parables, I, I just want to work through and, and, and answer a few questions in relation to the parables. And, and the first question is this, what is a parable? Well, when I first started digging into this topic, I thought, oh, this, this will be an easy answer to question. But, but I soon discovered that that wasn't true. In fact, parables are, are way more complicated than I realized. And they're, they're way more multifaceted. And and, you know, maybe like you, I, I grew up hearing that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, the problem with that definition is that it's only partially true. You know, some of Jesus' parables were, in fact, stories. Others were more just like analogies. But some were what was called a similitude. And a similitude is in a simile expanded into a picture. 
Now, if you're anything like me and you stink at grammar and, and language arts, here's just a quick reminder. A simile is a figure of speech that compares two unlike things explicitly using the words like or as. And so I know some of you are sweating because it's like language arts in eighth grade all coming back to you, but uh, it's okay. We'll get through this. But so here's an example of a simile. He runs as fast as lightning. So we're comparing a person to lightning, which those things don't relate at all, but it's something that we say, and so it's a simile. But um, so because of that, because there's a variety of, of, of different figures of speech that could define a a parable, one, one author said this about them. He said, at times in the Old Testament and or the New Testament, a parable can refer to a proverb, a simile, a taunt, a riddle, or a metaphor, as well as various kind of story types of parables and allegories. As a result, defining what a parable is becomes most difficult. Some scholars have even stated that any such attempt is hopeless because of the variety of terms the figure describes. Like, wow, that, that's pretty, uh, that's a downer there. So what are we to do? How are we to answer this question? Well, that same author went on in his book to, to defy the advice of scholars, and he defines a parable as this. A figure of speech in which there is a brief or extended comparison. Now, he then in that book goes on to qualify that even his own definition is lacking. But you know what? That works for me. So we'll say a parable is a figure of speech in which there is a brief or extended comparison. So let's move on to a second question, and that's this. What is their purpose? Well, I can only answer that question in a broad sense because there is a reality that each parable has its own unique purpose. But generally, the purpose of parables was to communicate the message of salvation and the message of the kingdom of God in a clear and simple manner. And so by and large, many of the parables are these very simple stories using everyday language and pictures to illustrate a message about God, about us, and about the kingdom. However, though, as you you see this in Matthew 13 and and, in an earlier part, that, that there was also this dual purpose to parables, and that was both to reveal truth, but then also to conceal truth from others. And so that's why oftentimes Jesus would share one of these parables, and he would say something like, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And so what you would have is these two different groups of of people hearing the same story, the same parable, and yet some would hear, understand, and receive the truth of God, and others would hear, not understand, and ultimately reject the truth of God. Now to be fair, there were times that Jesus had to explain his parables to his own disciples, and and because they just didn't get them, we, we see this in Matthew 13, but and there were, at the same time, there were also times when the Jewish leaders understood them and, and they understood that he was talking bad about them and, and they were offended at him. But still, by and large, their purpose was to reveal truth to those who were open to it and to conceal it from those who had rejected Jesus and his message about the kingdom. All right, so lastly, how, how are we to interpret them? Now, again, this is a way bigger subject than I can cover here this morning, but, but a couple of quick guidelines and clarifications. Well, first off, the, throughout the years, the church has erred in interpreting parables in at least two major ways. There's, there's probably others, but, but one of the early ways that the church erred was uh, many of the early church fathers over-allegorized the parables. And so you would get these really complicated interpretations where every person and every detail was allegorized, to the point of not even making sense. 
And so one example is Augustine, who I'm actually going to quote later. He was an amazing man of God, and so much of his theology has shaped the church. But when it came to interpreting parables, the guy struggled a little bit. And, and so here's an example. In, the, in his commentary on the parable of the Good Samaritan, which if you remember that story, it's this guy's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on his way he gets beat up by some guys, and then everyone you know, walks by him except for the one Samaritan. And so um, Augustine said this. He said that the guy who got beat up represented Adam, and that the robbers and the devil represented, uh, or, or that the robbers represented the devil and his angels, and that the end that the guy got carried to represented the church, and that the innkeeper was the apostle Paul, and, and he, on and on it goes. Well, the problem with that is, in all of his uh, over-allegorizing, he missed the point of the parable, which was simply to love your neighbor. And so that's sort of the first guideline. Don't over-allegorize these stories. Secondly, though, as a kind of correction to over-allegorizing, scholars begin to insist that that parables were meant to have one point, and only one point. Well, the problem with that approach is, is many of the parables do make more than just one point. And so, While the early church fathers' approach was too complicated and often missed the point, the one approach a point is too simplistic and often missed important points. And so what are we to do? Well, I really like what uh, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg lays out. He says this, when, when it comes to the parables, first, look for one main point for each main character or group of characters. For example, it's clear in the parable of the prodigal son that that each main character illustrates or represents a main point. Blumberg goes on to say, he says, Most parables will make one point, perhaps two, but no more than three. And so with that as a first guideline, or that's a first guideline for us. The second is this. The main points that you discover must be ones that Jesus' original audience would have understood. In other words, if, if what you think this parable means and you think the point of it is, if, if it's something that Jesus' original audience would not have understood or got, then there's a really good chance you've missed it. And so with that as kind of an introduction to guide us in these next five weeks, uh, let's go ahead and dig into the two short ones found in Matthew 13. You know, it's always dangerous just jumping into the middle of a, a, a chapter, in the middle of a book, and so let me just lay out the context here. Basically, in in the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus begins to teach. And so he's teaching on this beach, and and a big, huge crowd uh, joins him. And so he gets into a boat so as to not be crushed by them. And and so it tells us in verse 3 that that he told them many things in parables. And so Jesus shares quite a few parables here with the crowds. But then in verse 36, it tells us that he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And so Jesus had told this parable and and apparently his disciples weren't quite tracking with him. And so privately in this house, they asked him to explain it. And so from verses 37 to 43, he explains that parable. But then uh, in verse 44, he launches into a whole new parable. And and so that's where we're at today. And so uh, the two parables we're going to look at are together and and almost all the commentators agree that they essentially make the same point. And so because of that, we're going to address them together. And so from these two parables, we're going to see three things. Number one, the value of the kingdom. Number two, the discovery of the kingdom. And then finally, the cost or the price of the kingdom. And so let's look back down at verse 44. It says this. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, so the image here is of a guy working in a field, and, and he, maybe he's some sort of farmhand. He's, he's working for someone else, and so he's out there with his plow, and he's, he's plowing his boss's field, and then bam, his plow hits something hard. And so he sets it down, and he gets on his hands and his knees, and he begins to move the dirt away, and he discovers a box. And so he lifts the lid up, and he looks inside, and the box is full of all of this treasure. Now, you and I may be thinking, yeah, right, like, that ever happens or you know that's an urban legend or it's the stuff of hollywood but but actually this was somewhat common in ancient times and the reason that was the case is because if you think about it they they didn't have banks like what we think of today and so because of that and because they lived in a day and age where uh, wars broke out often and you would get invaded or famine would break out and you would there there were all these opportunities for you to have to leave your home and your land and and as you would guess people would would go off to war, or they would get taken into captivity, and they would die. And so they would never be able to return again to their treasure, to their land. And, and so someone else would take ownership of that field, and, and occasionally you would have someone discover their hidden treasure. And so what we have Jesus saying here, and so his disciples, they would have understood this and tracked with this. And Jesus is saying, look guys, the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, it is so cherished, that it would be like finding treasure hidden in a field. And if that didn't prove the point enough, he, he, he tells them a second story. He says again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so this story, the situation's a little bit different. And instead of a most likely poor farmer, you have perhaps a wealthy merchant who has given his life to diligently search for fine jewels and fine pearls. And, and so maybe one day he's out in the market and he's kind of combing through these different jewels and then he sees the one. He sees the pearl of great value and he sells all that he has so that he can buy it. And so I don't know about you, I, I read these stories and, and I get it, I get their imagery, I, I understand that they're illustrating the value of the kingdom. But I still have a nagging question and that is this. Why is it so valuable? Why is it worth giving up everything for? But before we answer that question, I think, and and I think as we answer this next question, it'll flesh it out a little bit, and that is this. What even is the kingdom of heaven? Or as some of the other biblical writers would say, the kingdom of God. Well, to be honest, I, I think a lot of Christians throughout the ages have got the answer to this question wrong. Not that they have completely misunderstood it, but that their view of the kingdom is incomplete. What I mean is this, many of us have, have grown up believing that, that there's essentially just heaven and hell. Now, I'm not, don't hear me denying those two realities. Those, those do exist, but for the believer, heaven is not our final resting place, our, our final destination. Yes, there, there is this place called heaven where Christ is, but the Bible teaches that when Christ returns, we're going to have resurrected bodies, as David talked about a few weeks ago, and Christ is going to reestablish a new heaven and a new earth. We see this in places like Revelation 21 and Isaiah 65. And so the reason why when John the Baptist and Jesus came on the scene and proclaimed, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason why that was good news and still is for us is because that means 
that God has kept his promise. It means that God has not given up on his creation. No, he is in the process of redeeming mankind and establishing his kingdom. And his kingdom is his sovereign reign, his sovereign authority over the earth. You know, often we, the, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, this is what he said. He said, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that prayer wasn't just wishful thinking. That's, that's going to actually happen. Jesus' will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and that's what a picture of the kingdom is like. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned and got kicked out of the garden, that wasn't just devastating and bad news for them. It was bad news for us. That meant that heaven and earth, that God and man were now divided. They were separated. They were even at odds with one another. And so the kingdom is God reuniting heaven and earth, God and man, bringing mankind and creation back under his divine rule and authority. And the reason that that is so valuable, the, the reason that that is so precious is because that means that we get to go back to the garden. We get to go back to God's design for us as humans. And that design is for us to be with him in an unhindered relationship. You see, when we read the first two chapters of Genesis, we get a glimpse of what this was like. We see how Adam and Eve had this perfect relationship with God. But then we get to chapter 3 and we see that they lose it. It's gone. Because of sin, that relationship has been fractured. And I just want you to try to crawl into their shoes this morning. I mean, they are the only two human beings who ever lived who experienced that. And so as I was thinking about this week, I just pictured Adam, maybe late in life, sitting on a rocking chair on his front porch, just thinking back to what it was like when they were in the garden. To thinking back what it was like to, to be with the Lord in an unhindered way. And he must have felt, you know, Adam and Eve for the rest of their lives must have felt this desperation to get back there. This deep longing to be reunited, reunited to God and to live in his perfect creation where peace and harmony reigned. You know, as they looked at their skin and they just saw themselves becoming wrinkled as they as they as they felt the pain of of one of their sons committing murder they must have just felt again this deep longing and desperation of if only we would have not blown it and you know what i think that desperation and that deep longing to get back there is something that's in each and every one of us you see we look around we all know that this world is broken and there is something in each and every one of us that cries out that this cannot be what was meant for us. You know, a few years ago, I, I was working at a different job. And, and to make a long story short, uh, out of nowhere, one day, people started getting let go. And my job was weird for a bunch of reasons, which I can't get into. But, but one of the weird things was that we had to park at a different location from where we worked. And so one day, uh, my manager pulled me aside and he said, hey, I need you to hang out by the back door because I need you to drive someone to their car. Well, I look at my watch and I realize it's not time for anyone to go home yet from work. And so as I'm having that thought, all of a sudden this woman comes out of a room and she's crying. And, and so instantly in that moment, I realized two things. Number one, she got let go. And number two, I'm going to have to drive her to her car. And the thing was, is this lady was one of the sweetest persons I've ever met. 
But at the same time, life had been extremely hard for her. Here she was in her late 50s, early 60s. She was divorced. Her ex-husband had been incredibly abusive towards her. She had had her own business. She had owned all these Hallmark stores and, and had ended up losing them when the economy crashed. And, and at the same time, so she was struggling financially. Her adult kids didn't treat her well at all. And in fact, they were somewhat cruel. And then here you have her, and, and one day out of nowhere, she gets let go with no warning. And so what do you say in that moment? What do you, what do you say in that car ride? Well, we get to her car, and, and I get out, and I just open the door, and I try to help her get to her car, and, and, and I gave her a hug, and, and I don't, this probably didn't make sense to her, but the only words that came out of my mouth was this, life wasn't meant to be this way. And what I was trying to communicate was we weren't meant to live in a world where husbands abuse you. We weren't meant to live in a world where we struggle to feed and provide for ourselves. At the end of the day, I think I was just trying to communicate that longing that we all feel that something isn't right, that something here is broken. So the reason that the kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field and the reason that it's like a pearl of great value is because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is in the process of reuniting heaven and earth, God and man. And that, my friends, is worth everything. You see, he is in the process of rewriting the wrongs, of bringing justice and peace, of healing and restoring this broken world, of satisfying that longing and that desperation that we all feel to get back to the garden. You see, when he created us, he, as I said earlier, he designed us to be in relationship with him. But that's been fractured because of sin. And, and I, I really like what Augustine says here. He says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And that rest can only be found when you know the king and you become a part of his kingdom. And there's many other things I could say on the value of the kingdom, but but those are just a few. But let's move on to that second thing that we see in these parables, and that's this, the discovery of the kingdom. If you look back at the first story of the guy with the plow and the hidden treasure, he isn't looking for anything. He's just going about his day. He's doing his job. He's he's plowing a field, and then, bam, he he finds the uh, treasure. And so the thought there is this. Some of us weren't actively searching for God or for the kingdom. We more or less stumbled into it. You know, some of us, maybe we grew up in church, but, but we didn't really connect or, or, or uh, care about it. You know, maybe the Bible was boring. Maybe Christianity was one big killjoy. And, and so we just weren't interested. Perhaps other, others of us didn't grow up in church. Maybe we never even cared or thought about God. It just, it never even came into our minds. We were just living our lives. We're doing our own thing. But in both cases, for some of us, we hear the gospel. It clicked that day. It made sense. And it completely changed our lives. And, and we more or less stumbled into it. However, others of us are, are more like the pearl merchant. We, we grew up and for whatever reason, we were always interested in religious things. We were always on the quest, the search for truth. Maybe we even dabbled in multiple religious groups, going from one thing to the next, trying to find the one. And then one day, someone shares the gospel, we we hear it proclaimed, and and for whatever reason, that day, it made sense. We, We knew that that was the one. That was the pearl of great value. 
It was the thing that I have been looking for, the thing that I have been longing for. And so some of us stumble into it and others of us search. But, but all of us, when we found the kingdom, we recognized its value. And as a result, we were filled with joy. You know, I had an interesting day on Monday. My, my wife is extremely great with children. And I don't mean by that she's good with kids, which she is. What I mean by that is when someone is very pregnant, you say they're great with child. And, and since we're having twins, my wife is great with children. Well, because of that, uh, I've been doing the grocery shopping for us as a family. And, and that's a pretty scary thing because when I first started doing it, I was terrible. You know, she would give me a list and I would buy all kinds of things that weren't on the list. And I would forget things that were on the list and I would overspend the budget and the whole deal. But I've gotten a lot better. I, you, know, I, you know, now that I'm like actually the one paying, it's like I have motivation to, to stick to it. And so uh, on Monday, I, I go out, and, and the first place I stop is at Mark's grocery store over here on Henderson. And for those of you who know Mark's, you'll know that there's this insane section of the store that is nothing but closeouts. Now, this place is very dangerous for me, that closeout section, because let me tell you, there's things that you didn't even know existed that you needed until you walked in there. And you're like, well, of course I need that, you know, and so you just start buying things. So I go through that section almost unscathed. I think I got like three or four things that I didn't need that weren't on the list, but, but I, I make it through there and, and I check out and, and I uh, walk out to my car. And if you remember, Monday was super rainy and ugly, and so I'm walking out to my car in the rain and, and I where are my car keys, you know, and I don't have them, and so I start to panic, and, and so I, I look inside my car, and I realize, okay, they're not in my car, my car's not running with them in it, or anything like that, and, and my doors are locked, so I go back into the store, and I begin to retrace my steps, well, I, nothing, you know, I'm just, the panic's beginning to build, and, and so I go back up to the cashier, and I'm like, you know, ma'am, I, I lost my keys, and, and she's like, well, uh, I didn't see them in your hand when you paid me, so you probably locked them in your car. And I'm thinking, no, lady, I didn't lock them in my car because, number one, I already looked in my car. And number two, I have a Honda, and Honda makes it almost impossible to lock your keys in your car. And so, no, they're not in my car. And, and so I asked him, like, can I just lay my groceries here while I search one more time? And she's like, yeah, that's fine. And, and so I begin to retrace my steps a second time. Well, as I go through that closeout section, I, I remember that there was this humongous cardboard box full of men's t-shirts for a dollar 39 folks a do- you know I was like I don't want to lose money on this thing and so I began to uh so earlier I had looked through there and so I start to think to myself I bet my keys are in this huge box full of men's t-shirts and so I begin to just frantically start throwing them all over the store and I'm searching for my keys and I after about five minutes I found them I cannot tell you how happy I was in that moment. I, I was basically on the verge of tears and laughing all at the same time because I thought they were gone and, and I found them. I was just so thankful, like, Lord, thank you. That would have been horrible. So I leave Mark's and I still needed to go to one more store. And so I go to Aldi. Any fellow Aldi lovers out there, anybody? All right, yeah. Well, for those of you who have been there, you'll know that there's only like four aisles in the store. And so... I'm in aisle three, rounding aisle four. I'm doing good. I'm, I'm stick, sticking to the list. And out of nowhere, I see a gas grill cover. Now, that may sound insignificant to you, but my wife and I have needed a new cover for quite some time. And, and uh, we had saw one a while back, a couple months ago, and it was like painfully expensive. And I just 
I'm like, I cannot spend this much money on a grill cover to, to keep the thing I want to use from rusting. And so we didn't buy it that day. And so Monday, when I discovered it at Aldi for like a third of the price, I was ecstatic. And so in that one day alone, I both searched for something diligently and I stumbled into something. But you know what? Both discoveries brought me joy. And so the principle is this. It doesn't matter how you discover the kingdom, only that you do, in fact, discover it. Okay, lastly, let's move on to the price or the cost of the kingdom. Well, first off, we shouldn't pull from these parables the idea that the kingdom is something that we buy or that it's something that we have to earn. Again, parables aren't meant to be pressed down and interpreted down to every last detail. Of course, we know from the rest of the Bible that salvation is, is a gift, that the entrance into the kingdom is a gift of God that was purchased for us by Christ. And yet, there is a sense in which there is a cost, there is a price involved. You see, your willingness to sell everything like these two men in the parables is how you receive the kingdom of heaven. But it is not how you merit or earn it. And that's an important distinction that you get. And so what do I mean by that? Well, you see, Jesus and his kingdom, they are not something that you can dabble in. In other words, it's an all or nothing commitment. You, you can't have one hand holding on to Jesus and another hand hanging on to the world. We see over and over again in scripture this call to decision, this call to follow Jesus and to forsake all else. And in fact, just a few chapters on past 13, Jesus tells his disciples this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And yet, as we have seen from today, when you truly get it, when you discover the kingdom, when you see it for its infinite value, you will be like the man buying the field and you will in your joy go and sell everything you own. You see, it's not a sacrifice when the thing you give up or when the thing you get is infinitely more valuable than the thing you give up. And so I don't know where you're at today. Maybe some of you are afraid that, that if you give your whole selves to Jesus that, that he's going to ask you to, to give up that relationship that you know is not good for you. Or maybe you're afraid that he's going to ask you to lay aside a, a habit that, again, you know is not right. But, but it's got a hold on you and you, you don't want to let go. You're, you're afraid. Or, or maybe you're like me early on. No, I was just afraid that God would make me go to Africa or somewhere and be a missionary. And, you know, most likely, although it was kind of funny, first service, uh, Kevin and Kathy Spicer were here who God, in fact, did send to Africa. Uh, but they're back now. And, and so, again, most likely... God won't send you to Africa. But if he does, I can tell you this. Anything you give up in this life for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, it's worth it. You know, one guy who truly got this exchange, who understood what truly matters, was a guy named Jim Elliott. Now, no doubt many of you have heard of him, but in case you haven't, Jim Elliott was a missionary who went to Ecuador in the 1950s. And he and a few other missionary families were seeking to reach a tribe that had never heard the gospel before. And so these men, they, they would uh, take these little airplanes and they would fly overhead and they would drop these little gift bags as a, as, a, as a kind gesture to try to break the ice. And so after doing this for a while, they decide one day, let's try to make face-to-face contact. And so this group of men, they begin to approach these natives and as they do, they get speared to death. And the world was shocked 
Life magazine even published a 10-page article about it. And the reason the world was shocked was because these were young American men who had so much of life to look forward to. Many of them were married. Some of them had little kids. They were in the prime of their lives, and yet it was all wasted. It was all in vain. At least that's what the world thought. Well, about seven years earlier before this, Jim Elliott, in one of his journal entries, wrote the following words. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, Elliot got this. He understood. He understood that there's a cost involved, but that the value of the kingdom is infinitely more valuable. He understood in the end it was worth it no matter what the cost. So whether God sends you to Africa or to Ecuador or to your neighbor next door, it's worth it. And you know, the world was wrong. It wasn't a waste. It wasn't in vain. In fact, uh, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, went back a few years later and she continued to reach out to this tribe. And eventually, a majority of the tribe ended up coming to know the Lord. Even the guy who, who martyred Jim Elliot came to know Christ and completely changed this group of people. You see, I bet there's some here today who are starting to question your purchase. You're asking yourself, was it worth it? Is it worth it? You're thinking, you know, the, the life hasn't quite worked out the way that I had thought or hoped. This whole Christian life thing isn't as easy as what I was promised. You know, the reality is, is, is being a Christian here in America isn't as beneficial as it once was. There's, there's starting to be a cost involved. We, we didn't feel it for years and for centuries, but, but now we're starting to feel it. Now the pressure, you know, we're, we're starting to get, uh, you know, made fun of or, or we're starting to get looked over at work for promotions. And, and so there's a cost involved. And so maybe some of us here today are starting to wonder, is it worth it? This morning, I just want to remind you, and I, I believe the Lord wants some of you in this room to hear this, and that's this. It's worth it. It's worth everything. Knowing Jesus and being a part of his kingdom is worth it. It is worth everything. And I believe some of you need to hear that today. You know, the Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 3.8. He said, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, maybe you're not there today. Maybe you can't in integrity repeat the Apostle Paul's words. That's okay. Maybe for some of you, your application today is simply to pray and to ask the Lord, as it says in Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, life has got you down. It's got you discouraged. And, and you've really lost hope. You've, you, you've forgotten what it was like when you first came into the kingdom and that joy that you felt, that joy of knowing Christ. And so maybe you just need to pray and say, Lord, help me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. However, there may be others of you here today who have never really made the decision to enter and to receive the kingdom of God. And maybe even after today, you're not even convinced of its value. If that's you, I just want to encourage you and to implore you to to look around at what the world has to offer. You know, watch MTV Get into the media, get into fitness, eat organic food, whatever your thing is, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was the thing, right? Look to those things. Are they going to give you ultimate significance? Are they going to calm your fears? Are they going to bring you the joy 
and the peace that you long for? And more importantly, are they going to forgive your sins and give you that, that uh, desire, that longing that you have to be in relationship with your creator? I don't know. You'll have to make that decision for yourself, but I know that it didn't work for me. No, in the end, I think those things are fool's gold. They're a fake treasure, and ultimately they will leave you bankrupt. If you are looking to anything other than Jesus and his kingdom to bring you joy and satisfaction, you have purchased the wrong treasure. You have bought the wrong pearl. And so again, if that's you, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you, you have joined us this morning. But I just want to challenge you to pick up a Bible, to, to read one of the gospel stories the, of, of the life and death of Jesus and, and to look at it with an honest heart. And I believe in the end you may just discover something that's worth giving your life for. And so let's pray to close our time here. Father, we thank you for the joy of knowing you. God, we thank you that you did not give up on your creation. Lord, you, you didn't just create this world and, and things went wrong and you gave up on us. No, Lord, you are in the process of, of bringing us back to yourself, of redeeming this world and this creation. And Father, we thank you for the hope that we have of, of one day being with you, as it says in Revelation 21, where you'll wipe away all of our tears. And we long for that day, and we rest in the joy and the hope of it. And uh, Father, we also just ask that you would now bless this offering. God, that you would use it to advance your kingdom, to, to, to bring more and more people into it. In Jesus' name, amen.